Let's go ahead and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter number 6, this morning. As we have been doing the last many Sunday mornings, walking through the Gospel of John together. And we've talked a lot about the purpose of the Gospel of John. It was the last of the Gospels to be written. And the purpose that John wrote it, the purpose that he wrote down his account of his time with Jesus Christ, he reveals to us in the very end of the Gospel of John, he he talks about how he wrote it, that we would believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would see the deity of Jesus. And of course, already at, at the time that John wrote the epistle of John, the Gospel of John, there was already a false doctrine that was beginning to crop up in the early churches that were in existence. And there were people with different ideas about who Jesus was. And so the Apostle John took pen in hand under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost for the purpose of revealing to us the deity of Jesus, that we might believe upon him. And this morning, as we look at John chapter 16 here, and we're going to start in verse number 14, and really this morning I've titled the message, The Deity of Christ. And we're going to look at the deity of Christ from three different miracles or three different, I guess two of them are really miracles. One of them isn't necessarily a miracle in the traditional sense, but it is something that only God can do. And so we're going to look at these three areas and see the deity of Jesus Christ highlighted for us this morning. Of course, last week we looked at the account of the feeding of the 5,000 from the first several verses here of John chapter number 6. And we talked about that. And so this is a continuation of that same event. John chapter 6 and verse number 14, after Jesus has just finished feeding them, in verse 13, they've gathered the 12 baskets of fragments that were left over. And in verse number 14, we pick up, it says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come, and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, his disciples went down under the sea, and entered into a ship, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs, They see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. So this morning, the first thing that we want to look at, the first uh, key or the first event that reveals to us the person of Jesus Christ and his deity is the knowledge of that Jesus displays here, the knowledge of the hearts of men. And we pick up there in verse number 14, at the end of him feeding the 5,000 men, of course, those that were also there, women and children. But verse 14 says, Then those men, when they had seen the miracle that Jesus did, said, This is of a truth, that prophet which should come into the world. So the, the men's response after seeing this miracle After eating of the bread and the fishes that Jesus had multiplied, they're pretty impressed. 
Now, if, if we were good to go back up in the text, we'll see, you know, Jesus had been healing some of the multitude as well. And the crowd was already very impressed. That's why they had run around the Sea of Galilee. They had outrun the disciples and Jesus as they came across on the boat. So they were pretty worked up already. They were excited about the things that Jesus was doing. They were entertained, if you will. They were impressed by the abilities that Jesus had. And they make that statement there, this is of a truth, that prophet, that should come into the world. What are they saying? You know, if we go back to John chapter 1, they asked John the Baptist. If you'll remember back to that, they asked John the Baptist, are thou that prophet that should come into the world? You remember John's answer, no, I'm not. So this, I mean, you and I looking at this in our fleshly eyes, if we're there with the disciples that day, this would seem pretty exciting, right? This is a crowd of people that are beginning to recognize who Jesus is. They're pointing back to Scripture and saying, this is that prophet. This is the promised one. This is the one that we're looking for. And so, you know, I think if you and I, if we're there with the disciples that day, that looks like a pretty good crowd. I mean, hey, if you're trying to start a church, you're trying to start a ministry, this is exciting stuff. They're starting to recognize what is going on. This is like going and, you know, you're trying to plant a church and over 5,000 people show up. Hey, that's a pretty banner day. You know, if 5,000 people showed up here, we would, we'd have to have church outside or something. You know, that would be crazy. That would be really exciting. And through the eyes of the flesh, this would have seemed very exciting, even to the disciples. But Jesus is looking with more than just the eyes of the flesh. You know, those, though these men are saying, this is of a truth, that prophet that should come into the world, their view of Jesus, their view of who Jesus was, of who he would be, what he would do for them, was very skewed. They had a very different opinion of who that prophet would be, what he would be like. We notice this from their intent, from their intent. Jesus, it says there, when Jesus, therefore, verse number 15, perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain himself alone. So notice their intent there in verse number 15. Their intent is to come and take him by force, to make him king. Now stop for just a minute and think about that. Consider what they are really thinking of doing. They're thinking, hey, we can come and we can take this promised Messiah, that prophet, the one that we're looking for, we can take him by force. Really? You're going to take God in the flesh by force? No, not going to happen. Now, I, th I think this reveals to us a little bit of who they thought this man was. They thought of Jesus as just a man. They thought that he was someone who they could take by force. Yeah, we can, we can grab him and we can make him king. We can force him to be king. They didn't have a view of God. They didn't have a view of Jesus as God. You know, they really hadn't thought through their plan very well. This was the one who had just been healing their diseases, something that they could not do. 
This was the one who had literally just taken five barley loaves and two fishes and had multiplied them into enough food to feed the entire crowd. I mean, they really hadn't thought through their plan very well. We're going to force this guy? No, they're not. They don't have that kind of power. How foolish an assumption and how revealing of their true hearts. They did not see Jesus as truly God in the flesh, or they would have realized that there was no hope of them forcing him to do anything. You know, if you and I will look into ourselves and think about this for a minute, how much like people today is this? People today, they still, they try to take God by force. They try to twist God's arm. They try to manipulate God to make God do things for them. They say, well, you know, if I I do this, if I say this many prayers, if I go to church this many times, if I give this much money in the offering plate, then God will do what I want Him to do. If I just behave, if I keep the Ten Commandments, then God has to do this. And, you know, even as Christians, we can fall into the trap of thinking that God owes us something. That somehow, you know, well, I've been a good Christian lately, so God has to do what I want. You know, I just come in prayer and He's going he's gonna to answer it the way that I want it. I can force God to do something. You know, really, people want God to get with their program. They think, hey, I've got this figured out, and if God would just get with my program, then life would be all that it ought to be. But you know, just as these people that day, they wanted Jesus as a king, they wanted to take him by force, that's really not what they needed. What they needed that day was not freedom from the Romans. It wasn't release from their bondage physically. What these people needed was to recognize who Jesus was that day. They needed to get with God's program. You'll notice next, they wanted to take him by force. Why? To make him a king. To make him a king. It's very telling in this that they did not understand who Jesus was. They thought that they could make him a king, but you'll notice the language there, a king. Now, if you stop and you think about the the history of the nation of Israel when it comes to kings, remember their first king. King Saul, right? You remember the reason why they wanted a king, why they wanted King Saul to be elevated as their king, was because they looked at all of the nations of the world, and they thought, oh, well, that looks great. That looks like something that we need. We need to be like everybody else. We need a king like them. And you'll remember the prophet Samuel, he came to them and he warned them of all of the negative things that would come from them seeking after an earthly king. The way that the nation of Israel was set up, God was to be their king. They were to be under the rule and the reign of God. God had given them a whole bunch of commandments that they were to live by. But they wanted the rule of a man. And they paid for it dearly. And if you you think back through the, the lineage of kings in the nation of Israel, they suffered a lot at the hand of their kings. But here they are in this day, on this occasion, and they want another king. They want a king. And you'll notice that they didn't recognize who Jesus was in the fact that they wanted him as a king. 
You see, when Jesus comes and he sets up his kingdom, he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is not a king. He's not just another king that's going to come and throw off the rule of the Romans. No, when Jesus comes and establishes his kingdom here on earth, it's going to be an eternal kingdom. He will forever reign as king. He's not just going to be a king. He is the king. They didn't see their true need. They needed Jesus to come and to be the king of their lives on that day. But they were so caught up in the physical, in the earthly reality of day-to-day life. You know, really, the, the response that these people should have had on that day? Had they truly recognized who Jesus was, they should have fallen on their faces and cried out, Be merciful unto me, a sinner. You know, so it is today, most people do not see their true need. Most people, even religious folks, folks that claim to be Christians, they will say, they'll think that they need a Jesus, I'll put that in air quotes, that can come and make their life better. Someone that can come and remove the negative things from their life and pave the way forward so that they can live their best life now. Jesus said these words in Matthew 16 and verse number 24, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So we see Jesus and the knowledge that he had of these men. Earlier in the the Gospel of John, it said that Jesus didn't commit himself to them because he knew all men. He knew what was in men's hearts. And so as he looks at these men this day and he knows what their intention is, he knows that they want to force him to be a king over them. They want him to lead their campaign of overthrowing the Romans. Jesus knows all these things. He knew their hearts. So rather than getting excited at this ministry opportunity, hey, we have a chance for explosive growth, Jesus turns He sends them away, and he goes into a mountain himself alone. So we see the knowledge of Jesus that reveals to us his deity. But next, we'll notice his walking on the water reveals to us his deity. Doing that which is impossible physically. The first thing that we'll notice as we think about this account and Really, you know, if you've been in church for any length of time, the story of Jesus walking on the water, the account of him walking on the water is something that's familiar to all of us. It starts, you know, for me, in church as a little baby, it starts as a story that you hear. And you, you can begin to lose what really happened here. But this morning, we're, we're going to try to take apart the text and see what was going on with some fresh eyes. And so first, we'll see the scene. The scene. It says in verse number 16, John tells us, When even was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea. So even, evening time, it's getting close to being dark. It's evening. They've gone down to the sea. So we know that they were up on a hillside of this mountain. And they've gone down to the Sea of Galilee. Interestingly enough, the Sea of Galilee is one of the lowest lakes, it's a freshwater lake, 
one of the lowest lakes in the world. And so they go down to this sea. And you think about who the disciples are, right? We know that at least four of them, Andrew, Peter, James, and John, we know that they were all partners in a fishing business. So the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Tiberias, this, this was kind of their home turf, right? This was an area, this was uh, an occupation, being on a ship on this lake was something that they were very familiar with. They, they would have grown up in this business, and they would have been very comfortable on the Sea of Galilee. It tells us in verse number 17, they come down to the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea towards Capernaum. So it, the Bible doesn't tell us exactly where they were when Jesus did the miracle of multiplying the loaves and the fishes. But it would have been a journey somewhere of about five to seven miles across the water. So not a, not a very long journey by boat. But then John tells us, and it was now dark, and Jesus was not come to them. Now, for you and I, it's dark. Okay. We've got lights. Have you ever been out on a boat on the water when it gets dark? It's kind of a, an eerie feeling. When I was a little kid, we took a ferry across uh, from Chicago across, what is that, Lake Champ? no, not Champlain, Michigan, I think. And we took, we took a ferry all the way across, and we did it overnight. And so we pulled our car on there, and then we got a little berth, and I was little, so I slept underneath the bed that my parents were sleeping on, and thankfully I didn't get seasick. But it was kind of eerie, because it was very dark. And you get out on the water, and you look down into the depths of the water, and you can't see much of anything. But of course, these guys, they would have been very familiar with this. They didn't have flashlights. They didn't have GPS navigation. You know, their boats, they didn't have Coast Guard approved lighting systems on the bow and stern. No, they, they didn't have any lights at all. Maybe they had a lantern with them. I don't know. But it would have been dark. There wasn't a lot of, of shore lights along the seaside to illuminate things for them. They were out there on the dark waters. But still, it was something that they were comfortable with. This was their home. This was something that at least those four men would have known well. It says, and Jesus was not come to them. We don't know about the prior arrangements that was made. It seems from the text here that maybe you know, they rode out a little bit into the water and they waited there where the crowd couldn't get to them. They rode out there and they waited for Jesus. And at an appointed time, Jesus hadn't come. And so they, they launched out. We're not exactly sure, but Jesus was not in the boat with them. John makes that clear. So we see the scene. The scene is set, but then a storm arises. It says there in verse number 18, And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. Now it's important to remember Who's writing this, right? John the Apostle is writing this. John is a seasoned sail sailor. He's a seasoned fisherman. He's used to being on the Sea of Galilee. So for John to say the, the sea arose, you have to imagine that there were some pretty large waves. He wasn't somebody who would 
get worked up at a little bit of white caps on the water. He was used to the Sea of Galilee. Now, you and I, I might go out there and think, whoa, that's a big sea. I don't want to be on that. I don't like anything more than a little chop, personally. But John says that the sea arose. So I picture in my mind some fairly large waves. I did some research on the Sea of Galilee. It's usually a fairly calm place, but there are the mountains there, and sometimes the the way the, the wind blows, it can blow off of the mountains, and the cold air can mix and instead of tornadoes, like we get around here, or hailstorms, the, the sea arises on the Sea of Galilee. Back in 1992, they had a particularly bad storm, and they had waves of over 10 feet in height that were recorded. That's pretty tall. I think about a 10-foot wave, that's taller than me. I don't like that. I certainly don't want to be on a boat on the water in a 10-foot wave. And if I am, I want it to be... A really, really big boat that's not as affected. I don't want to be out on a little you know, fishing vessel that's going way down. You can't even see over the waves. So these men, they're out there on this water. John doesn't seem too concerned about it, but he tells us there, so when they had rowed about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, a furlong is equivalent to about 600 feet. So they had rowed about 2.8 to 3.4 miles in the range that John gives us. So they'd made roughly about half of their journey. But comparing the gospel accounts, and this account is in three of the gospels, Mark tells us that it was about the fourth watch of the night. So we know that they had left at even, and about the fourth watch of the night, about 3 to 6 a.m., They had only made it 25 to 30 furlongs. Now, in other words, they'd been rowing for approximately eight to nine hours. That's a really long time to row. And I know these guys, you know, they were used to rowing, but they had to be tired after eight or nine hours of rowing. It was a pretty big storm. There was a lot of wind that was fighting against them. An average person who's, you know, relatively fit can row about three and a half to four miles easily in an hour. These guys would have been fit. They would have been used to rowing a boat. For them to only make it that far in eight or nine hours, you can picture this was a pretty intense storm. There was a lot of wind that was pushing against them. So they didn't make it very far. They're toiling and rowing and laboring and hardly making any progress. And here they are being tossed in the middle of this stormy sea that Jesus has sent them off alone. Jesus isn't there. Mark, the account in Mark, chapter number 6 and verse 48, though, it says, And Jesus saw them toiling in rowing, for the wind was contrary to them. You know, these men, they might have felt all alone in the middle of that storm. They might have felt as if Jesus had sent them out without any help. They might have felt as if Jesus had abandoned them and left them to the storm that was now enveloping them. As they were toiling in rowing and as they were getting tired and covered in salt spray, maybe they felt abandoned. 
You know, so it is this morning that many times in life, you and I can feel as if we are all alone in the middle of the storms of life. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel as if Jesus has left you all alone. Does Jesus care? You might ask. But you know, all the, all the while, while they were toiling in rowing, Jesus knew exactly where they were. In fact, Jesus was watching them, Mark had told us. So we see the scene and the storm. Next, we'll see the sight. <clears throat> the sight. So these men, certainly, though they're toiling and rowing, though this is grinding on for them, eight or nine hours of rowing, they're still somewhat used to this. But then something comes along that they've never seen before. In verse number 20, or sorry, in verse number 19, they'd rowed about 5 and 20 or 30 furlongs. They see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. So they're rowing. You know, you can picture these guys. They're rowing. They're in, in high seas. They're cresting waves. They're falling down. They're rowing and rowing, and there's waves coming over the boat. And I don't know, one of them's back there bailing, getting water out of the boat. And they look over, and there's somebody walking. Now, you know, this is the kind of stuff in the Bible that really gets my attention. It, it, I don't know, maybe it's just how my mind works. But I have a lot of questions about what this looked like. You know, was Jesus... Was the sea calm around Jesus and he was walking on a flat sea? Or was he riding the waves up? I don't know. I don't know how this worked. I don't know if Jesus was getting wet with the spray of the water. And honestly, I hope one day in heaven there's some kind of a replay where we can go back and we can see this with our own eyes and see what happened. But whatever it was, they all see Jesus. However it happened, I don't know, one of them elbowed him. Hey, you see that over there? And remember, it's, it's nighttime. It's dark. So how they see Jesus, I don't know. If it's by, like, lightning is striking and illuminating him, if Jesus is shining, or if there's no clouds, it's just a windstorm, and they have enough moon and stars to see Jesus, I don't know. But somehow all of them see there's someone out there on the water. Now, for men who are very comfortable on the water, they would have been very uncomfortable with that. You can imagine around the seaside towns of Galilee that there probably would have been stories that little boys told around campfires about you know, ghosts and things out there that walked on the water and monsters in the lake. Here was you know, the stuff of fairy tales made real. They all see someone walking on the water. Right, can we all agree this morning? That would be a very frightening and unusual circumstance. Right, if you're out here on Pickthorn Lake, it's not very far from here, and you're out trying to catch some catfish, and it's midnight, and you look over and there's somebody walking next to your boat, you're going to jump out of your skin. You might fall in the lake. Right, that's going to be very frightening. A very unusual circumstance. Something that they had never seen before. You'll notice, though, the understatement. John says, and they were afraid. I would imagine so. They were afraid. 
But next we see the Savior. Verse 20, But he saith unto them, It is I, be not afraid. It is I, be not afraid. Oh, what comforting words those must have been. As they sit there in fright, wondering what in the world this new sight is, I don't know if they were cresting waves and losing sight of Jesus and coming back up, and oh, he's still there. But Jesus calls out against the storm. His voice rises, It is I, be not afraid. The familiar voice of the Master, the one that they knew so well. John says next in verse number 21, they Then they willingly received him into the ship. They apparently recognized exactly who it was. They heard Jesus' voice. They received him willingly into the ship. They were excited. They were happy to see him. They were were relieved. It's Jesus. It's not something else. They were familiar with the Master. So we see the miracle here of Jesus walking on the water. But then last of all, thirdly this morning, we'll see his transport of the ship. And it's something that we could just gloss over without really thinking about. But it is a miracle that's recorded for us. Here in verse 21, Jesus is received into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whither they went. Now, you know, some people, they try to gloss over this. They try to say, well, you know, with Jesus, it's kind of like, you know, when you're a kid and something's really exciting, then a road trip doesn't seem as long. You know, it just it goes by really fast. That's not what happened here. John is very clear in his language. He says, immediately, the ship was at the land whither they went. Again, I don't know how Jesus did this, but apparently the boat and everybody that's in it, they're rowing. They've been rowing for eight, and eight or nine hours. They've only made it halfway. Jesus gets in the boat with them, and they're at the shore. They've made it. Their journey is over. Now, stop and think about these things. Jesus walking on the water. Jesus moving them and the ship immediately to the land. These are miracles that Jesus did. But for whose benefit? Right? There's, there's no multitude around. There's no crowd that is gathered. It's only the disciples. Jesus is doing this for them. To reveal to them who he is, to reveal to them the power that he has. Jesus' deity was on full display this evening. It was on full display to the disciples as he walked on the water. As things that were out of control to them were completely under control for Jesus. In fact, they were under his feet. As things that they could not do, Jesus was able to do without even thinking about it. Mark tells us in chapter 6 and verse number 51, as he writes his account of this happening, and he went up unto them into the ship, and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. And wondered. They pondered. They thought about this. What in the world is happening? These were men who had been out on the Sea of Galilee many, many times. 
They had never seen something like this happen ever before. Jesus had done this for their benefit. His deity was on full display. But you know, for you and I today, we receive benefit from this as well. For it's been recorded for you and I. This same Jesus, that in this account was walking on the water, was well aware of where the disciples were in their journey. He was well aware of the toil and the rowing that they were doing, how the wind was contrary to them. So Jesus is well aware of you and I today. Jesus is still alive and well. He is still just as powerful. Just as all things were under Jesus' feet on that night, even so still all things this morning are under Jesus' feet. The things that overwhelmed the disciples on that night were the things that had already been overcome by Jesus. He is, he was, and is the master of the wind and the waves. So it is with you and I, even still this morning, that the things that overwhelm us, the things that frighten us, are the things that Jesus has already overcome. For you and I this morning, our sin, our sin problem, our sin debt, is something that has been overcome by Jesus Christ. It's something that you and I can submit ourselves to, that we can receive of Jesus' victory over sin and death. And you and I can pass from being dead in our trespasses and sins to being made alive in Jesus Christ. You know, the crowd that day, they didn't recognize their need. They didn't recognize their need for a king. This morning, have you? Have you recognized your need for King Jesus to rule in your heart? Have you recognized the mess that your sin has made? Your inability to save yourself and the fact that you need the King to reign and rule over you? You know, this morning, maybe you find yourself in the midst of the storms of life, toiling and rowing, feeling as if you're getting nowhere, feeling as if Jesus has abandoned you to your circumstances, I can tell you this morning, without a doubt, that Jesus cares. Jesus sees and he knows your situation better than you do. You can trust him this morning.